This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Don't open that yet. Okay. I've got a thing I want to do. Okay. Okay. What's going on, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> hey. After I was scolded and told I couldn't open my beer yet. Uh, uh, yeah. So we've got some some new beers for us to try today. Yeah, what you got, Clayton? I've got um, the something by the brewery. It's a new brewery that I've never heard of. You never heard of the brewery? It's literally called the brewery, and brewery is spelled B R U E R Y. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've uh, never heard of that brewery either. Me either. Um, and this beer is called So Happens It's Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, I'm interested to see what it was because it, it was like a $13 beer. Yeah, it was. It was expensive, but it was an imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels, which y'all know that is my thing. Clayton's an aged guy. And the ABV is 15.3%. Ooh. I didn't see that before. That is stout, my man. Yeah, it is. And it's an actual real pint. So perfect for pints and perspectives. What yeah. you got? Uh, I also have an actual real pint. Um, mine is only 6.7% ABV, but mine's from Sierra Nevada, Yep. which if you don't know, I do really enjoy this brewery. They are actually interesting enough. Um, they are based in Colorado. If you didn't know. Arguably the brewing capital of the U.S., Fort Collins, Colorado. Yep. No, that's absolutely true. Um, so I am drinking the Hazy Little Thing IPA by Sierra Nevada. And if you don't know, um, I really love when IPAs are named after Jimi Hendrix songs. <laughs> and I don't know if this one is, but the hazy kind of gives me the, the idea that it is. The thing about that, and, and if we talk about the thing that I want to talk about, and you know the thing I want to talk about, will we have to throw on the explicit thing? I'm not 100% sure on the thing that you want to talk about. If I'm, If we're talking about hazy and Jimi Hendrix... Yeah, it, then, okay, then we are on the same page. Yes, we would have to throw up the explicit thing. Then we're not going to talk about it, but you guys know that thing Yeah, that, you know, you do. The the thing that you know. Yeah. The thing that you know <laughs> that you do. Yeah. Um, that Jimi Hendrix also did. Yeah, yeah. Um, is a close cousin to hops. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of jokes in the beer community when you that if get you're really a, hoppy beer. If you're a hop head, you're a haze head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to phrase it without having to throw on the explicit sign. Yep. Um, anyways, so. Right, so why can't I open my beer? Because I want to do I want to do this thing. I want us to like open it into the mics and go. All right. We'll give that a shot. Here we Ready? go. Three. Hope that wasn't too loud, y'all. Cheers, bro. Cheers. Mm. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Well, it should be for $13. <laughs> <laughs> that's like 120-minute kind of money. Yeah, it is. I promise you I will not be drinking this all the time. Yeah. 
I was just in HEB walking up and down the specialty aisle, and I was like, well, this looks like something Cullen would like. Yeah, and that, that aisle gets me in trouble. Yeah, me too. Because when I'm there, I don't typically look at price. And, man, I should. Because then I walk up to the counter, and, I, and, and I'm like, man, I didn't mean to spend this much money on beer. But I also don't want to be the guy that has to go put it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I just buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we started Soteriology. Yep. Based on the title of the episode, you guys know what's coming. You know what's coming. It's here. Y'all came to see it. You knew it was coming at some point. Yep. This was and, a this was a bridge that we had to cross at some point. Yeah, and I do I do want to preface this. I meant to and I might still be able to get someone who identifies within the Reformed tradition. Oh, we could absolutely do that. The person that I had in mind to come on actually has COVID. No. Are, are we, we might be thinking about the same person. No, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I did not know that they had COVID. Yeah. They oh, seem to sucks. be recovering. Um, and so hopefully I'll be, hopefully they'll be good. If you don't know, since I had COVID, I'm still in the immunity phase. So... I've got enough antibodies in my system that I'm I'm still good. Uh, so there is a chance that I might be able to link up with him next week, but I'm not going to name drop him just in case. Yeah, we need to talk about that. There might be a way that we can work that out. Um, anyways, so we're talking about Reformed theology. Specifically, not Reformed theology, Reformed, Reformed soteriology. soteriology. Yeah, because Reformed theology... Goes, it's it's, its own animal, and it's 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 bigger than the box that we're going to talk about today. Right now, most people know reform soteriology, and so they call reform theology reform soteriology when it's actually only a subcategory. Right. No, that's fair. Um, and let's let's also say this: reform theology or reform traditions. You have Reformed Baptists, mm -hmm. and actually, statistically, from Baptist life, um, Baptist history, we had two strains of Baptists. We had what were called a separate Baptist, a regular Baptist, and then we had what was called free will Baptists. Free will Baptists have pretty much died out. I mean, you can't really find them anymore. They don't really exist. So pretty much all of Baptists have come from a Reformed tradition. Now, we don't all identify that way anymore. I don't right. identify as a Reformed Baptist anymore. I don't but either. that is our heritage. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but the most common and traditional Reformed tradition would be Presbyterians. Yeah. So if you're looking for like how to place this in the larger denom uh, denominational or ecumenical conversation, it's Presbyterians. Yeah. So, and you would have commonly heard this idea being put forth by what we're about to talk about by John Calvin. The tulip, yeah. The tulip. We're about to talk about the tulip. Um, for some of you that listen, like you're going to be like, oh, okay, I already know this. Just listen. <laughs> yeah, don't turn it off. Just listen. Um, because this is for the people that may not know. 
Well, and if you if you're one of those people that thinks you know it so well, why don't you listen and tell me where I'm wrong and send me an email and I'll meet you for a beer. Hey. And have conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um so let's start with the T. Yeah, so the TULIP is actually an acronym for five different um, theological ideas. And the TULIP begins with total depravity. Yep. And total depravity is interesting. Um, and you may, you may hear some of these and go, oh, I believe that, and I believe that, I believe that. And then you'll get to one or two here, and you go, oh, that's where the difference is. And that's exactly what it is. Remember, this is pints and perspectives, right? We're discussing different perspectives. We're not saying what is right and what is wrong. And this is our our commitment to you. We're going to do our best to try to stay unbiased. Yes. We've already told you that we don't identify as Reformed Baptists. But that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to tell you where we are soteriologically. We will eventually, but yeah. as we're detailing these positions out, I think we we have all, um, both of us, have wrestled with each soteriological position within each of these categories. Absolutely, and yeah. so we we feel pretty. Um, we feel adequate to have the conversation, and we're also going to try to stay unbiased. So. To be fair, they might actually already know where you're at because of your episode with Adam. Oh, I do say it in there. You do. Yep. Don't go listen. I you ha- you better have integrity. <laughs> <laughs> you better not go listen uh, if you, you want to go listen. Go ahead because we don't actually say what it is. We, we don't. And most know people in America do. don't know what it is. No. So, anyways, the way that I like to talk about my soteriology is when when I meet new people, they say, "Oh, are you Reformed or Arminian?" And I go, guys, I'm having conversations that you don't even know about in my soteriology. I ain't talking in those terms anymore. Yeah. So, anyways, the tulip. The T is for something called total depravity. And basically, the general premise and idea of total depravity is that at the fall, so Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, and sin has now entered the world. There are three curses or four curses given by God. Uh, one is to Adam. It's that he will now have to work the ground and it'll be sweaty and painful and all these things. One is given to Eve that she will now bear children in pain. The other one is to the serpent that he will now crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the ground, and that his head will be stomped by the foot of her seed. So there's an eschatological prophecy there as well embedded with the curse. And then the remaining one is that the earth itself will now be corrupted by sin and bear forth thorns and thistles to use the old King James Version. yeah. Uh, So with that, total depravity is the idea that not only is the world itself now totally depraved, but the person is totally depraved. So, um, uh, and this this whole idea actually originates with Augustine. 
in about the fourth century, uh, or some people might call him Saint Augustine, or you might know him as Augustine. Is how some weird people say his name. It's not weird people. It's just how you say it. Uh, and but he's the author of um, oh my goodness, the Confessions so and um, the City of God. I think is the other the other big one. And but the general the general premise of this idea is that the the person themselves is totally depraved. They're depraved of all goodness. And with that, um, Augustine comes up with this idea about total depravity, and he actually puts it in the context of Jesus, that that's why it's so important that Jesus is born of a virgin, because sin is passed down generationally through... um, the father, the sins of the father in the conception act. Yeah. So there is that idea. Um, and we're going to break these up. We're going to do one strictly theological application of the soteriological idea. And then we're going to take it back into the biblical narrative. And we're going to do that for all three of the main categories of soteriology. Just to help you get a a better understanding. But now, now we're to the you, Right. Um, the unconditional election portion, which the total depravity plays into unconditional election. Well, it's actually the foundation of everything. Absolutely it is. But that's why Calvin formed it the way he did, because total depravity means that you are fully in your sin. Yeah, yeah, you're consumed by it. You are consumed by your sin, and therefore the unconditional election piece says that you're not capable of choosing God on your own. Yeah, your sin has depraved you away from all goodness, and because of that, you don't have the availability. You are incapable of making a decision for God. Therefore, God chooses you to be saved. Right, God must be the initiator of salvation. He must first choose and act. Yeah in order for you to experience restoration. And those who he chooses are called the elect. Yep. Um, and, and and so with moving forward on that, ultimately what that means, and this is not a pejorative, this is just literally what it means, God chooses some and does not choose some. Right? Yeah, so the, the question would be amongst Calvinists is, are you... Um, so some would call this predestination. Right. The question is, are you a predestinationist or a double predestinationist? So a hyper-Calvinist or a hyper-predestinist or a double predestinationist would say that God actively chooses some while simultaneously actively damning others right. to sin. A more moderate and probably more common stance. Well, and probably more true to Calvin himself. Yeah. Would be that, yeah, God chooses some, and in his neglect of choosing others, he damns them, but it's a byproduct of his own sovereign right. uh, salvific experience. It, it, it's the ordination of, of his 
of his will. Yeah, it's a it's a passive byproduct of an active right situation of choosing some. The way that it was first explained to me, and and I actually loved this, is that um, I've heard the argument before. This is not the part that I loved. The Calvinists um, are lacking because if they kind of get this idea, this is not true, but they get this idea that if God wants them, he's going to get them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's just not true um, for Calvinists um, because the, the way that I heard it explained to me, and I just I loved this, is that they don't walk around expecting to see an E on somebody's back for being elect. Yeah. Right. You still got to share the gospel with everyone that you can. Yeah. The way that I like to talk about it is Calvinists believe that we're all, and this is a really gruesome metaphor and I acknowledge that, but Calvinists believe that we're all just a big heaping steamy pile of dung (laughs) and God out of his goodness comes down with a shovel and picks some of the dung out yeah. and elevates it to a new level. The dung has not done any activity in and of itself. God is the actor. Mm-hmm. The shovel is the one doing the activity of salvation versus, you know, the person being an active participant. Yeah. In this situation, and what Calvin and his followers are really trying to do there is say that we we can't choose God. God must choose us because we are totally depraved. We are yep. incapable because of the fall to choose God. Yeah, absolutely. It has absolutely nothing to do about um, favoritism. It has absolutely nothing to do with favoritism. It has absolutely nothing to do with the need for evangelism or sharing the gospel or goodness or good news or any of that. The most truest sense is that we are depraved, broken, totally by sin, and because of that, God must be the actor and initiator of faith, not us. Yeah, fundamentally, that's, that's, that's unconditional election or predestination. Yeah, that's the you. That's the you. So now we're at the L, which is limited atonement. Yeah, this one... It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. So, right. um, Well, let me just detail it out the best that I can. So for limited atonement, what that really is saying is that the atonement, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus... Mm -hmm. Is limited, right? So, yeah. In John three sixteen, Jesus says, or or John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave one and only Son, that whosoever will believe in Him would have eternal life and not perish." Um. So with that, that seems pretty unlimited. That doesn't seem limited at all. Yeah. What a Calvinist would say is that atonement was sufficient for all. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the atoning death, was sufficient for all to be saved. But not all are going to partake. Well, but it's only efficient 
for the elect. Right. Because ultimately what it, this is an argument that I've heard before too, is that um, God knew who would and who wouldn't. Right. Therefore just. Oh, the divine knowledge piece. The divine knowledge piece of the God knew who was going to choose him. And so just predestined them for salvation. Right. Um, Which ultimately you end up having to ask the question of, well, then you still have free will to choose. Right. But like, um, well, yeah. So hyper Calvinists would say you don't have any choice at all. Oh yeah. That, but that's that that, your, that your life is scripted like a puppet uh, or like a a play. Um, more moderate Calvinists and reformed traditions might not say that, but you know what that reminds me of the hyper Calvinism thing though. Right. It reminds me of, of like, um, Norse mythology. The, the weaving of the fates. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just too far for me. <laughs> the hyper thing. Yeah, I think moderate Calvinism is a is an acceptable position to be in. Mm-hmm. Hyper Calvinism. Um, Taking it, it one step too far. Look, you lost me at anything where I got to preface hyper. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Um, if, if, if it's an extreme of anything, I'm pretty sus. Yeah. And so... With this, Calvinists would say that, okay, we got to do, and basically what they're saying and what Calvin himself is saying is, okay, if we say that atonement is truly unlimited, then we should all just be universalists. Yeah. Everyone will be saved. Mm -hmm. And so Calvin didn't believe that. That's not what he saw in the text. And so he needed a new way to differentiate this. So we came up with this idea of sufficiency and efficiency that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, right? That the atoning death, that the, the divine grace is sufficient for anyone, but they can't choose God. And so it must only be efficient. It must only actually accomplish the job for those whom are elect. Right. And that's, that's a succinct idea of limited atonement. Yeah, let's just sum it up like this. That the blood of Jesus only covers the elect, right? And those who aren't elect, the blood doesn't cover. Well, no, that's, I actually, that, no, that's not a good way to talk about it. You sure? Yeah, the, the right way to talk about it is that the blood of Jesus actually covers every person, but it only turns the elect white. It's okay. sufficient. It covers everyone. Right. But it actually only does the salvific deed. For some. For the elect. Yeah, for right. some of them. Therefore, we're saying the same thing. We're saying the same thing. The metaphor is the, different. Yeah, and, and that's the point I want to make is they would say that the death of Jesus is sufficient for all. Is sufficient for everyone. So you're all covered in the blood. Right. But it only accomplishes saving grace the turning from red to white. Yeah. The purity element for some of us. We've only got two more to go through, and I know we're at 23 minutes right now, so keep tracking. Yeah. Um, so now we're at the I, the irresistible grace piece. This is the one that everybody gets hung up on. This is the one, even even a lot of reform people, self-identified reform people get hung up on. They struggle with this piece. So the idea here... 
is that once again, remember you're totally you're a totally depraved person, and God has elected some, and that election is unconditional. You didn't do anything to earn that election, and, and in being elected, the atonement of Jesus was limited to you. And because of all those previous things, you can't refuse grace. When the gospel is presented to you and the Holy Spirit prompts, you are incapable of resisting the grace of God. Yep. Because of all the steps that has been taken or had to have taken place in order for you to be presented with the gospel, you are incapable you to resist grace. Yep. It is not an option for you to resist the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So this is the part where people get hung up on because at least in in very easy succinct reading there's no free will. Yeah. And this is where this is where a lot of people get caught up. It's a hard one. Um, yeah, this, when I talk to reformed leaning people, this is the one where they go, yeah, that's the one that's the hiccup. So, I mean, a lot of what are called four point Calvinists. Right, right. Where, and their, their hang up is this one. Mm-hmm. So, because it's so hard to rid the, it was just like rid the free will element. Right. So, I'm going to be real that that has not been my experience. That that's the one people hang up on? Or has your experience been that you've just been around enough reform people that are not hung up on any part of it? A little bit of both. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> I know the tradition you came from. Nobody was hung up at any level. I did about know it. some people in that tradition, okay. in that expression, that were hung up on the limited atonement piece because they didn't know how to formulate the idea to fit within Calvin's narrative. Yeah, that's true. Um, I know someone that was in a very prominent position in that tradition and they themselves, that's the piece that they struggled with. So it makes sense that that trickled down into others, but the irresistible grace piece is the hard one because it does feel like God is, um, God's the game maker. Yeah. And he's writing the story for you. It feels mechanical. Yeah, it 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 feels, and that's not pejorative. That we're we're not talking about. Yeah, yeah, like, no, we're. I mean, it just it's what it feels like. That is what it feels like. And so, what what a Calvinist would say is, you your free will is in the choice of sin or goodness, yep. sin or holiness, yep. but your free will is not in grace. It's not in in your salvation. Yeah, the salvific act is not up to you. No, because like we've been saying thus far, you can't choose because you are depraved. Yeah, you are incapable of choice, and so God has made a way 
And because you can't choose, yep. you also can't resist. Right. God's good. And that's the piece that we should point out here. Mm. God's goodness is more powerful than your sinful evil. That is definitely what they talk about. And that that's like, that's the piece here is that the grace is irresistible because God number one, yeah. you're incapable of choosing. But number two, God is bigger than your sin, darkness, and evil. That is a very good point. Yeah. Um, but we, we have to move on, sadly. One more. One more. The perseverance of the saints. That's the P. Yeah. You've probably heard this as once saved, always saved. Yeah, that's that's the jargon for it, once saved, always saved. Um, this, and this has been adopted by a lot of a traditions. Lot of tra- yeah. yeah, this is a much more common idea and belief. Um, and I think doctrine or dogma is probably what it's become. Um, but perseverance of the saints is the idea that if God, well, and this, this is the idea. So other people have adopted it into one saved, always saved to say that if you're saved, you will forever be saved. Yeah. What Calvin is doing and what his followers are doing is more to say that if you are chosen, like you're in it to win it, there's no, you're, you're all in. Yeah. Um, and they would, well, I don't, can't get into the Bible pieces. I keep wanting to go to the Bible pieces in these explanations. And I've told myself we're going to do theology and then we're going to do Bible. Um, because when you're talking theology, you don't need to look at the Bible. You just need to look at what other people say about the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my joke. <laughs> <laughs> that That's one joke that bugs the crap out of me, man. <laughs> yeah. that That's my joke that uh, if you go get a theology degree, you don't actually read the Bible. You just read what other people said about the Bible. <laughs> it's not actually true to, uh, to all my profs and friends and the dean at Truett Seminary. That is not what we do. And I love you. Uh, <laughs> But that is my joke. <laughs> so, so what? All I heard was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Um, your boy trying to get a PhD. I need that help. Uh, no, but for perseverance of the saints in, in a in a reformed tradition, the idea is that if God has chosen you, you're in it to win it. Yeah, um, you're there for the long haul. That it's and what other what some people would say is that if it's a gift that's been given unto you, you can't give a gift back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and that once again, all metaphors break down at some level. Do. But I think that's the general premise, idea, and heart of perseverance of the saints is yeah. that. Saints, those chosen, the elect, and that that's the other thing we should point out. That word saint yep. is specifically chosen mm-hmm. to reflect the, the people. Elect. Yeah, the elect. Yep. People who have partaken in holiness. And and you'll um, find that in certain translations of the Bible to talk about the church. Uh, or saints, the people of yeah. the church. Yeah. The saints, yeah. Uh that's 
that's really prominent in Ephesians. If you're looking for a place to go, yep, we're not supposed to talk about the Bible. We're not supposed to talk about the Bible. All right, so, but yeah, so the the idea of the perseverance of the saints is that if you are a saint, you will persevere into the end. Yep. Different reform traditions debate whether or not that's because you're overwhelmed with the grace of God and you will choose now to stay or if God himself is forcing you to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do think that nuance is significant. Yeah. Um, But that's the idea of perseverance of the saints and and that's the other thing we should talk about in the tulip is they all build on one another they do build and you you need i think this is what calvin's fathers will say to to all uh, the people that were like oh i'm a two-point calvinist or i'm a four-pointer i'm a three-pointer and you're not a calvinist <laughs> yeah you're not um, um because and you Calvin, have to accept all five points because they build on each other and if you can't take one without the others that's at least not for calvin because they are a bit dependent upon one another. Now, I think the general idea of one or multiple can be transferable. Yes. There are a lot of traditions that believe in total depravity. Yep. Um, there are a lot of traditions that believe... In perseverance of the saints. In perseverance of the saints. Um, the hey, middle three, those are the... Well, I would even say that there are a lot of people that would say that they believe in limited atonement. Yeah. Because if not, you got to be a universalist, yeah, right? The all it's it's one of those that I've chosen because the alternative is something I can't get there with. Right. Um I I do also think that we need to talk about though that this was happening at a time Calvin was forming these ideas at the time right after Luther nailed the 95 theses. Right? Not too long after. Yeah, pretty pretty significant amount of time after, but in the same general but, Reformation period. Yeah, in the same general Reformation period, um, his ideas were in in um, in reaction to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and even to some degree Luther himself. Um, and so, what you're finding actually with with Calvinism is radically different than those two traditions um, fundamentally. Yeah, John's doing his own thing. I just looked because I couldn't remember specifically. Um, John was born in 1509. Mm. So he's like six when Martin nails the 95 Theses. That's not too long after. It's not, but it's also long enough that like they're they're not conversation partners. No, they're not conversation partners. And, but it, and the, it's also important to remember and, that historically, John, his dad was um, trying to get him to be a lawyer, but he's like, no, nah, I want to go be a priest. Yeah, but but that's that's the other piece. John's French, right? And ends up at Geneva, and there's 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 all these other things that surround him. Um, excuse me. I don't think. Um, I actually don't know that Luther is affecting him at the way that we want to believe he is. I'm not convinced of that. Zwingli's affecting him. Oh, for sure. But I don't know that Martin. Because I also don't know that John and Martin are that far off. 
I think soteriologically, they definitely are. No, I think their followers are quite far off. Well, I think that... We do have a few places where we might say that they were in conversation or or, or those kinds of things, but but by and large, they're not... Luther is still slightly meritous, right? Um, they still a proponent of confession and... And yeah, still but as a practice, not as a means of grace. Still marrying. No. Luther would not say that you're saved. You're saved by faith alone. Okay. That's his yes. thing. Sola fide. Like you're right. saved by faith alone. You realize that current Lutherans That's why I said his followers, not okay. himself. Okay. Um, I don't think John and, and Martin are that far off from one another. Um part where Martin might get hung up would be on God's choice in mm-hmm. salvation versus an individual's choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's to be debated. Yeah. And there's plenty of books written on that. But <laughs> yeah. um, so that's the idea of reformed soteriology from a theological perspective. Um, we're going to look next week from a biblical perspective. So we'll look at a few key passages um and i think there's something really interesting that we're going to look at next week uh just for a bit of teaser we're going to look at a text in romans where god seems to choose people and all of you guys who know you're like oh yeah i know i know i know (laughs) yeah let me let me drop let me drop a bomb for you In Romans, the idea is that God chooses. And there's a specific narrative that plays in Paul's thinking here. And it's it's Jacob and Esau. Yeah. And Paul says in in proxy to God, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I would urge you, go back and read that narrative. Before next week. Yeah, please do. Because I'm going to tell you the answer that I think. And you'll be shocked. But it's not God's choice. It's Esau's choice. Yeah. Go go read. Come back. Listen. Um, we're chilling. We're going to have a good time next week. But now we got to sign off because we're, we're way over. So cheers, brother. Cheers. Hey. Respect perspectives.